It's a damn tough life full of toil and strife we weathermen undergo. And we don't give a damn when the gale is done, how hard the winds did blow. Cause we're homeward bound from the Arctic ground with a good ship taut and free. And we won't give a damn when we drink our rum with the girls of old Maui. Rolling down to old Maui, me boys, rolling down to old Maui. We're homeward bound from the Arctic ground, rolling down to old Maui. Welcome to Higgledy Piggledy Whale Statements. Ben, are you going to say anything? Oh, sorry. I was waiting for you to say, <laughs> oh, I'm Mark. Sorry, I'm Mark. And I'm Ben. <laughs> I think at this point, I sort of assume that people are like in this for the long haul and know who we are, but I shouldn't assume that. Yeah, I, I was just used to that rhythm at the start here. So there was a pause. I was looking at you and you were looking at me. <laughs> sorry, I should have jumped on that sooner. It's fine. Not a problem. Uh, <sighs> I do think it would be very funny if someone started the started reading Moby Dick with chapter 58 brit yeah that would be an it would be an odd place to hook up with this podcast and an odd place to start in general but maybe you just really want to understand whales diets yeah could be could be you won't really from this but you'll get closer than most of the other chapters i think something like that um (sighs) so brit yeah brit who doesn't love brit (laughs) yeah um yeah, so today we are starting with chapter 58, Brit, uh, which is about, <laughs> I mean, it's not really just about this, but it is about the the thing that uh, right whales eat, yep. which I guess the modern word for this would be zooplankton, mostly. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, you know, uh, microscopic animals that like float on the surface of the water. Um, yep, and specifically, uh, Ishmael likes the imagery of this as like flowing golden fields of wheat, but it's more of a microorganism slime. Yeah. And the uh, whales, the right whales, just sort of drifting through it like mowers, just uh, chewing through it. And Ishmael insists that the sound of them eating with their uh, their baleen is in fact like mowing grass, like. I guess, yeah. Like a chomping I, noise. I, I tried to find recordings of the sound of right whales feeding, but I couldn't find anything like that. Understandably, yeah. I mean, there's lots of recordings of whales on the internet. I've used them in this podcast before, but... Um, the, not of that? They're recordings of, like, whale calls, not mm, of, like, yeah. whale-eating sounds. Yeah. I'm. What if they sound like... Chomp, 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 like... <laughs> Or, or like, like a Pac-Man, yeah, like a Pac-Man noise, like, oh, 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 but, oh, oh. but they keep their mouths closed. That's how it works. They're, they're, they have baleen. They're filter feeders. That would be, it would be sperm whales that would eat like that. Well, no, like their their mouth is open. It's like going in, like like Kirby sucking things, and like, they don't have to close their mouth. It's just the, you know, the the mowing noise. I, <laughs> I just think it's cute to imagine them doing that. I, I have no ability to argue against you, I guess. <laughs> um, so yeah, the the Pequod sails into an area of Brit, um, and uh, uh, he compares Ishmael compares the the whales to mowers, like you said, in terms of the sound that they make. Uh, but visually, uh, they basically look like huge rocks, lumps, 
uh, which makes it almost like hard to believe that they are actually alive. Except that they've got like, each of them has like a trail of Brit that they've moved through. So I imagine they're rocks with a very long, like, like I imagine them, and I'm sure this isn't entirely accurate, but I imagine basically just in a line and behind them, there's just like these thin straggles of Brit where they haven't been eating. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it seems like for Ishmael, part of the reason that it's hard to understand that they're alive is literally just that they're so big. Yeah, yeah. Um, which, I mean, I can understand that, you know? Like, oh, yeah. Um, Whale's large. Yeah. Uh, and this kind of leads him into a general discussion of how weird sea creatures are. Yeah, how, how the oceans are weird and unnatural and unhealthy for humans. Um, he specifically talks about how, like, there aren't any fish that are basically dogs yeah so there's some sort of idea uh and i i don't really know where exactly he's getting this from although i i believe him that it, oh. this is like an extant sort of naturalist you idea mean this, this impression that some old naturalists have maintained that all creatures of the land are of their kind in the sea exactly so i think that's more meant like ecologically like there are various kinds of predators and various kinds of prey and various like there's things that fulfill the same sort of ecosystem roles yeah, I mean, you're. I'm sure you're right, but I also wouldn't be surprised if there are, like, literally, you know, naturalists mm. who argue that, like, there's a, there's a sea equivalent to every land animal, you know? Like, that seems to be the idea that Ishmael is responding to here. I, I think so, but I think it's, I suspect that the actual, like, theory of the time was more along the lines of, look, sharks are the wolves of the ocean, and whales are the mammoths of the ocean, and that kind of thing, like... There's a general analogy to their various, like, roles in a in a natural world. Yeah. Yeah. Unfortunately, PowerMobyDick.com does not cite this claim to any particular mm -hmm. uh, historical scientist or anything like that. So hard, hard to say exactly what yeah. Ishmael is arguing in. But, yeah. but he does point out, like, uh, you know, that basically that you might claim that there are, you know, sort of... You might claim that sharks are sea dogs in the literal sense that they are, like, you know, hunting animals. Yeah. But, like, dogs are nice. And sharks <laughs> are scary and well, mean. So what, what he says is, you know, taking a broad general view of the thing, this may very well be, may very well be, yet coming to specialties where, for example, does the ocean furnish any fish that in disposition answers to the sagacious kindness of the dog? The accursed shark alone can in any generic respect be said to bear a comparative analogy to him, but it's also like Ishmael, Ishmael, sharks are to wolves, dogs are extremely domesticated wolves, like... I, I agree that a shark and a wolf are not the same thing, but I feel like this is a slightly biased comparison because we haven't been breeding sharks to be friendly for multiple thousand years. So, I mean, how well established is that understanding of domestication So, at this time? I mean, if you look at Darwin, he was arguing... So, the idea that dogs are domesticated wolves is, I think, present at the time. I mean, so, um, so the idea that, like, dogs are, like, the nice, people-friendly version of wolves, that seems basically obvious. <laughs> to the child-friendly version of a wolf? <laughs> yes, like, it, you, if, you, if you're aware of a dog and you're aware of a wolf, it, it, that the conclusion, is, yeah, the conclusion yeah. seems hard to avoid. Um, sure, sure. But, but like, the, the specific idea that people made, made wolves into dogs through selective breeding. That is, that is something that I think was more readily accepted, if I remember correctly, than evolution by natural selection. Darwin uses, like, 
pigeon breeding and the domestication of pigeons and the domestication of crops, uh, less so crops, he was mostly talking about animals, in his uh, Origin of the Species, if I remember okay. correctly. Like, in fact, a lot of the early selectionist argument was based on the analogy of natural selection. That is, you know, we know how we can improve, you know, animals that we farm. So what if nature nature does the same via fitness, basically? Yeah, I guess the, the thing that I am wondering about is not, like, I think the, yeah, I think any any society that is, like, familiar with with farming, and, like, you know, this is, like, Linnaean genetics, right? Like, uh, there's the idea that you can, yeah, like, artificial selection. Um, I guess the thing that I'm wondering about is the idea that you could literally turn one species into another, Although I guess with wolves and dogs, that's complicated because obviously... They no, like they, they, they barely have. They're still interfertile most of the time. Yeah, yeah. So this is complicated. But Yeah, um... anyways, what I'm saying is most of all, I am reasonably certain that he would be aware of the concept of a wild dog. Right. And this is, and he's just like, sharks are not as nice as the dogs I have known who are quite kind. Anyways, Ishmael's just being mean to sharks and I won't have it. Yeah. Um. <sighs> but, uh... Yeah, this this leads him to this point that, like, uh... The sea is utterly outside of human control. Well, it is, but what, the, the way that he actually leads into that point is saying, like, okay, we know that sea creatures are incredibly bizarre. And uh, terrifying. And the ocean is eternally unknowable and dangerous. Uh, but by, like, the repetition of that awareness... People have actually gotten used to that idea. And, yeah, and yeah. It's almost like he's saying, like, okay, yeah, everyone knows the sea is terrifying and alien, but, like, have you ever actually thought about what it means about how the sea really is terrifying and alien? Yeah, he's got some amazing sentences in this section. Uh, you know, um, you know, talking about, like, this this interesting little turn of phrase, uh, though we know the sea to be an everlasting terra incognita, so that Columbus sailed over numberless unknown worlds to discover his own superficial western one. Yeah, you said he's got some very good sentences in this section. I believe you may be referring to a paragraph which is one sentence. Yes, he's got a bunch of clauses in that paragraph, which is one sentence. You're correct. But he also has a later sentence that's really good, which is, um, you know... He's going now into his normal historical mode of bringing in these details. And one of them is, you know, the first boat we read of floated on an ocean that with Portuguese vengeance had whelmed a whole world without leaving so much as a widow. So that same ocean rolls now. That same ocean destroyed the wrecked ships of last year. Ye foolish mortals, Noah's flood is not yet subsided. Two thirds of the fair world it yet covers. Yeah. That's a really good line. Yes. Um, so he is basically arguing that, uh, you know, everything that is disturbing about Noah's flood is exactly the same, like, it, the, the ocean is still that. Yes, and he also points out that, you know, there's another biblical miracle, which is, uh, the ground opening up and swallowing an army. Well, the sea opens up and swallows boats every day. Are you saying it's a miracle on land, but not on sea? To which I would respond, yes! But, you know, like, the basic... His basic point being, if the miracle is the awfulness of an entire, like, body of men just vanishing from the world by an act outside of their control, well, that happens all the time on the ocean, from whales and from other things. Yeah, um, and furthermore, uh, not only is the ocean, like, 
that destructive to humans, but it is also brutal to its own, like, two sea creatures. Because uh, even whales, like, get dashed on rocks and, and beached and things like that. Yes. Um, uh the masterless ocean overruns the globe. It's this immense power. And he does mention this idea that, like, no matter what kind of science and art humanity may attain to, our ships will still be sunk by the ocean. It will still be this immense and unmanageable power. He hasn't really been wrong yet, but I just want to point it out. Yeah, yeah. Um. Uh, he's also very upset that, like, sharks are pretty. Yeah, yeah, he... he... There's a, uh, consider the subtleness of the sea, how its most dreaded creatures glide underwater, unapparent for the most part, and treacherously hidden beneath the loveliest tints of azure. Consider also the devilish brilliance and beauty of many of its most remorseless tribes, as the dainty embellished shape of many species of sharks. Uh. Yeah, no, he's, he's very, there's a lot of, like, anti-shark propaganda in Brit, a surprising amount, given that Brit has nothing to do with sharks. Yeah. Uh, and he's also got this, you know, phrase, uh, consider once more the universal cannibalism of the sea, all whose creatures prey upon each other, carrying on eternal war since the world began. Yeah. Like, he's just, he's really trying to make it clear, the sea is terrifying, and in fact, literally ends the chapter saying, don't go on the ocean. Yeah, uh, although he's, he's not, uh, he, he is saying that, but he's saying it as an analogy because he, he basically, he's built up this whole thing. Okay, the sea is truly terrifying. Um, and Unknowable, then, outside of us, totally uncontrolled. And, and consider by comparison, this green, gentle, and most docile earth. Uh, and then, you know, uh, sea versus land. Don't you think that's kind of like the human soul? <laughs> um, yeah, he explicitly says, and do you not find a strange analogy to something in yourself? Mm, mm, mm. Waggles eyebrows. Yeah. Um, <sighs> for as this appalling ocean surrounds the verdant land, so in the soul of man there lies one insular Tahiti, full of peace and joy, but encompassed by all the horrors of the half-known life. Um... God keep thee, push not off from that isle, thou canst never return. So yeah, it's it's interesting, because this, this chapter sort of pushes back against, or sort of frames against the lured shore, or these other ideas of like, you know, greatest things are most unfathomable, sort of the, the wild desire to set out into the unfathomable ocean. Here, he's taking the more Starbuck position of, actually, maybe don't do that. Yeah, yeah, um... Yeah. Uh, yeah, I think that's Brit. Yeah, that's pretty much it. Not a, not a super long chapter. Um, nope. We've got sort of a variety show today with a number of short chapters. Yeah. Uh, including a bunch that are just named after nouns, which I find really amusing. <laughs> like, it's just, here's a piece of the boat. Here's a thing whales eat. Here's another piece of the boat. Here's another thing whales eat. Yes. Um, well, not in that order. It's actually thing whales eat, things whales eat, and then... Yes, but... Uh, yeah, so this next chapter... Thing That Eats Whales. That's uh -huh. one of the chapters. This is uh, chapter 59, Squid. Squid! Yeah. Uh, so I enjoy squid. <laughs> uh, the Pequod uh, reaches a period of calm um, where she continues to sight the spirit spout. Um, yep, but it's very, it's very calm and pleasant. Uh, or... Uh, it's not even calm. Like, it's not calm as in they're becalmed. There's a constant convenient 
pleasant breeze. So they're sailing quite well, but nothing's going on. It's all very... It's not like the doldrums. It's just pleasant. Yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, In fact, he explicitly says, One transparent blue morning when a stillness almost preternatural spread over the sea, however unattended by any stagnant calm. Yeah. Um, and uh, on that morning, uh, Dagu spots something large and white in the distance that's not... Doesn't really look like a whale, but uh, he sings out for it as the white whale anyway. Yeah, it specifically it rises like twice, and he's... Actually, no, it rises three times, and it's on the third one that he goes, y- You know what? I think it's a whale. Maybe it's a whale. The white whale! Yeah, yeah. Um, and can you imagine Ahab? It's only like, uh, you know, in my copy, 274 pages of 550-some that's like almost not almost precisely halfway through the book and someone's yelling out for the white whale Ahab must be very confused uh, oh i see <laughs> i didn't quite get your point um you're you're talking as though ahab has like metatextual knowledge of how yes, long the book is yes, okay that the, the joke is that we know that this can't or at least i would assume it was not moby dick even and it's also in a chapter titled squid and they've it's been the book is not trying to convince you that this is moby dick no it's not i do think that like uh you know i i don't think this is how it goes but i wouldn't be um it would be a plausible way for the story to be structured for them to like encounter moby dick not be able to catch him sail around for a while trying to find Moby Dick again. Like, mm-hmm. to, to have several encounters with Moby Dick before they actually have the final sure, sure. one. Um, but, yeah, I think you're right. That's not actually what happens. <laughs> um, Anyways, uh, I mean, I, I don't remember precisely if they never cite Moby Dick before, um, you know, uh, big things happen. Uh, but um, there's certainly a white mass, and uh, when Ahab sees it, he's immediately like yep lower for it go out yep and uh so you know they lower for the whale or the you know quote-unquote whale uh we know what a lowering is at this point um and uh it it like the white thing sinks and then rises again and and at this point it's, it's how you know it's it's how the whale the boats worked with the last lowering the whale goes down and then you have to sort of sit in your boats looking around to see if you can catch its spout when it comes up again. And it comes back up in the exact same spot, so they're all ready arrayed to see it, and it's not a whale. Ooh. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's, it's a vast, pulpy mass, furlongs in length and breadth, of a glancing cream color, lay floating on the water, innumerable long arms radiating from its center, and curling and twisting like a nest of anacondas, as if blindly to clutch at any hapless object within its reach. No perceptible face or front did it have, no conceivable token of either sensation or instinct, but undulated there on the billows, an unearthly, formless, chance-like apparition of life. So yeah, one thing I will say is that this depiction of a squid is wild. Yeah? And it is, like, giant. It is a whale-sized or larger squid yeah. thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then it just sort of goes... Yep. And, and disappears and, again. And uh, Starbuck, Starbuck sees it as a, as a bad omen. Yes. Um, he says that he, he would almost have preferred to have uh, actually encountered Moby Dick, uh, because uh, they say few people have ever seen the squid and lived to tell the tale. 
The great live squid which, they say, few whale ships ever beheld and returned to their ports to tell of it. But Ahab just... Can you imagine how disappointed Ahab is right now? Yeah, yeah, he's pretty disappointed, I would assume. Like, he just turns around and goes back to the boat without... The ship without saying a single word. He's just like... Uh, yeah um uh, and uh ishmael does not necessarily sign on to the uh squid as a bad omen idea but he does say that um it's extremely rare to actually cite this and so mm -hmm. you know that that yeah it's something that's important about this is that remember there was only it was only like a couple years ago now like maybe eight ten years i don't quote me on that uh where um, we caught a giant squid on, like, camera. Yeah. Like, the giant squid are, you know, very deep. We, ha we had reconstructions of their bodies. We had some very, like, complete ones. I actually got to once see at the National History Museum in London. Um, a There's a giant squid preserved in, like, a huge custom glass container. Um <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's a spooky place. So you have to go down to the jars room where they keep, like... So there's some of Darwin's own samples oh, in little God. jars of formaldehyde. And there's this giant, like, prism of glass in the center of the room that is too large to take out of the building. It was assembled in that room around the squid during the preservation process. Wow. Yeah. No, it's... And, you know, it's a, it's a preserved squid, so it doesn't have the, like, life and majesty of it. But they're quite big. And imagine, like... If you've only ever seen them, presumably they were occasionally seen coming to the surface and there was no way to record it because people had a memory of them. In yeah. fact, Ishmael discusses that there seems some ground to imagine that the great crocken of Bishop Pontipodon may ultimately resolve itself into squid, which just makes it sound like the kraken to me is going to like just break apart into a bunch of squid. <laughs> but the, the point being that this is... This is a creature that is believed to exist from the sounding of sperm whales' stomachs when they're butchered, and the fact that you find tentacles in there, and, like, uh, attacking arms and squids like beaks, but you couldn't find a whole squid. There was no way to interact with one. So they had no idea what they were actually like, only that by analogy, like, they clearly existed because parts of them had been found, and no animal to which those parts could be assigned had been found, and little squid and cuttlefishes definitely existed and were caught and fished and so on but the giant squid which was believed to be sperm whale food was basically unknown yeah and uh, and the 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 you know the reason why it's suspected that the sperm whale eats these kinds of squid i mean as you said they've like found uh ishmael says that they've seen sperm whales like vomiting up what people think are squid arms um uh, but also, like, the another primary reason for this supposition seems to just be that, like, sperm whales feed deep underwater. No one sees them feeding, and so they have to eat something big that exists at the bottom of the ocean. Yes. And they have to be eating something that they would eat with teeth. So, probably it's squid, which, yeah, you know... Yeah, again, you've got... But they're also... They're cutting up sperm whales. So they yeah, have yeah. It's like the stomach, and they find bits of sperm whale in stomachs. I, or they find bits of squid. In the yes, way. they find bits of squid in stomachs. Bits of sperm whale will be much more distressing in the context. Although, I suppose technically speaking, you'll find bits of a sperm whale in their own stomach, in the sense that their stomach is a bit of the sperm whale. Sure. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, uh, like, I, it's totally true that, like, decent evidence existed at the time for the idea that sperm whales ate squid. But the way that Ishmael is presenting it, it is very, like, indirect yes it's very indirect and speculative that's why they don't have 
They have no sense of what a giant squid is actually like. All they have is the belief that one exists, and it's probably huge, because sperm whales apparently only eat it. And, you know, he's got this line, So rarely is it beheld, that though one and all of them declare it to be the largest animated thing in the ocean, yet very few of them have any but the most vague ideas concerning its nature and form. It's, you know, it's, it's, the sperm whale literally feeds upon a mysterious thing unlike anything else on the face of the earth, down in the dark where no one can see it, in the depths of the ocean where nothing is knowable, and where we can only speculate. And I think that's a, another good point in favor of Ishmael's general use of the whale as the unknowable. Yeah, yeah, entirely fair. <sighs> I also love the, the very ending of this uh, chapter. Mm -hmm. This little uh, paragraph... By some naturalists who have vaguely heard rumors of the mysterious creature here spoken of, it is included among the class of cuttlefish, to which, indeed, in certain external respects it would seem to belong, but only as the anak of the tribe. And that's referring to one of the, I think, children of Isaac, um, himself the son of Abraham, because the anak was supposed to be the, like, um, the, like, uh, patriarch of, and therefore descendant of all the giants, the Anakim, in... Uh, narratives of the conquest of Canaan by the Israelites. Yeah, uh, yeah, uh, hey, he's a, uh, yeah. He's a giant, He's basically. a biblical like, giant, yep. A biblical giant and, like, the father of biblical giants. Mm -hmm. So the Anak of the tribe would be, you know, here's the family tree of cuttlefish, and here's the one who's just really stupid huge. Yeah. <sighs> but yeah, um... Yeah, that's that's squid. Mm -hmm. uh -huh. Also, I do like the phrase uh, about the kraken, the uh, the mythical creature that uh, was supposed to be the squid, and that um, uh, that Bishop Pontipodden claims existed. Much abatement is necessary with respect to the incredible bulk he assigns it. So, like Ishmael's saying, okay, they're really big, but they're not that big. Yeah, come on. I mean, uh, PowerMobyDick.com says that. Uh... Pontipidin wrote that the Kraken was the size of a floating island. So, like, fair enough. Okay, it's not that, that that's big. That's true, but there was an entire, like, medieval bestiary, like, especially Anglo-Saxon medieval, like, uh, old English idea of the whale, like, the evil devilish whale sitting with its back up in the ocean so that people would land on and think it's an island and then drown them all by diving and eating them. So, you know, if whales are the size of islands, I think that squid can be too. Yeah. I mean, Cephalopod writes. Sure. Uh, I think this is just a part of uh, Ishmael's general thing where he is not interested in the idea of, like, sort of historical, mythical creatures. He wants them to correspond to his modern, uh, experiential, and scientific knowledge of the whale. Sure, sure. So if someone I... says whales are island-sized, he's going to be the one to pop up and be like, actually, it'd be a pretty small island. Yeah, yeah, but I'm just saying if that counts as island-sized, then the squid can also be the same size and be island-sized. Okay. I mean... Anyways. I, I'm saying that I think Ishmael would quibble with the idea that whales are island-sized. He, he called them looking like big rocks last chapter. What, what is an island but a big rock? <laughs> Come on! <laughs> okay, okay. If it's a, a big rock sticking up out of the water, maybe some stuff's growing on it. Maybe you can land on it and be like, ah, yes, this is the top of a large, larger rock that is not visible below the water. Is that not an island? Okay, okay. Or we can call it an islet. I, 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 I'm no longer interested in trying to split this hair. Let's move on. Uh, I mean, we mostly split whale hairs here. 
Uh, All right, and then he just decides to talk about uh, Whaley gear for a little while. Yes. Yeah, this is... This is just, um... Chapter 60, The Line. Yeah, Chapter 60, The Line, um, which is all about the whale line, which is, you know, the the He's... rope that is used to actually... The rope that is, like, attached to the harpoon that yep. you, you chase the whale with. The magical, sometimes horrible whale line, as Ishmael puts it. Yep. He also uh, goes on at first about what it should be made of and what makes it, like, a good uh, material. Like, how it's usually made of best hemp. Or, uh, well, historically it was made of hemp. Now it's made of manila hemp. <laughs> really? Is manila rope another kind of hemp? Yeah, it's a different, I mean, it's a different plant. Um, it's but a different it's, substance. It's still a, it's still a plant rope, yeah, of yeah, course. It's, it's, yep, I, yep. I don't think that for a, a modern person, the difference between hemp rope and manila hemp rope... Uh, is all that important, but it's but, very but important to Ishmael. Ishmael insists to me that it is much more be- handsome and becoming to the boat, although he says it in a slightly racist way. I would say not slightly racist at all. Straightforwardly yeah, racist. Yeah, no, it's, it's straightforwardly racist, where he says that this hemp is darker and more like a uh, more like an Indian, whereas the um, the new hemp is more like a Circassian, because like, it's like blonde. He, yeah, it's he blonde. is literally saying Manila rope is blonde and Caucasian and therefore better. Like, uh, there's no getting around this one. Yeah, no, no disagreement there. It's, I was underselling how racist that sentence is. Anyway. I just remembered him making a racist analogy, and then I went back to it, and it's so much worse. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, he also has, uh, takes this opportunity to give his opinions on tar. Um, because, uh, like, under, basically, Ishmael tells us, um, most sailing line... Uh, is, like, totally saturated with tar, um, which makes it uh, more pliable and, like, more sort of convenient for the most part on a ship. But that also... Hmm, okay. Now I'm a little confused because he says that tar makes makes the hemp more pliable to the rope maker. However, that too I'm... much tar stiffens the whale line. So I guess... I mean, he says that, um, I think what he's saying is that a little, he describes as being vapored with tar. So, well, a little... no, no. so, so, yes, but he, we're comparing regular mm. sailor's line and, and whale line. And I, I guess what he's saying, because he's saying that regular, regular tar line is, is ordinarily impregnated with it. Yes, exactly. And that makes the hemp more pliable to the rope maker. So I think maybe what that means is when you're making rope, it's convenient to have it totally yeah, soaked in tar. Yeah, because I think the tar clumps together the um, the strands of hemp yeah, that you're going to be weaving yeah, together but then, and sticks it. But then it also makes the finished product stiffer. Yes, which would not be a problem for many lines, which just have to, you know, hold a weight and they do one thing. Whereas the uh, whale line, as we will see, has to be stored in a very compact way and has to run out really quickly. Yeah, um, and... Uh, uh, as I said, this is Ishmael's... Run out as in, like, come, th- you know, get pulled out quickly, not run out as in, and we quickly ran out of whale line and didn't have any more. <laughs> oh, yes. Sorry, yeah. it's No, yeah, good, good, uh, good point. Um, and, uh, here's the opportunity for Ishmael's whale opinions. As most seamen are beginning to learn, tar in general by no means adds to the rope's durability or strength. So he, he is clearly, uh, needs us all to know that, like, you don't need that much tar, guys. Yeah, yeah, he's very, he's got strong opinions about the proper amount of tar, the proper kind of hemp, and all that. And it's notable that his version of it is quickly, like, 
moving towards the general use by whalers. Yes. Like, like he's going, whalers do it right. Everyone learn from whalers. <laughs> yes. Um, <sighs> and uh, he also talks a bit about the strength of the whale line. Yeah. So it's... some uh, some statistics on whale line. It's two thirds of an inch thick. Uh, it, it will uh, it will pull almost three tons. Uh, yeah, it and is an individual uh, strain of um, like uh, like one like of the one, threads one of the that yards, makes it up. Yeah, will hold uh, a weight of 120 pounds, which is why the whole thing will nearly equal three tons. And it's uh, over 200 fathoms, which is 1,200 feet long. It's a lot of whale line. It's, yeah, uh, it's a significant amount of whale line, and um, he talks about how it's, like, uh, stored, which is it's layered into a drum in a way that I don't think we need to explain in detail. But, like, basically, it's layered in such a way that instead of, like, a spinning spool, you'll pull off one layer from the top and then the next and then the next. So it'll run out more quickly when it's pulled. Yeah. And it can't get caught on anything. Yeah, and it needs to be, it needs to be coiled in, in, the, in the tub or drum uh, completely without tangles, because if there's the slightest, like, kink in the rope, uh, when it's run out, that is going to take somebody's arm off. Yes, it could dis- so, well, take somebody's arm, leg, or entire body off. I assume that means beheading. Like, yeah, or, or that... just pulling the whole guy off the boat. Oh, yeah, that could also be true. It could be either of those. I just like the idea of him describing a beheading as took someone's entire body off. Yeah. <laughs> so... Apparently, it can take an entire morning to coil the rope properly in the tub before it will eventually get pulled out in a single minute if it sticks in the whale. Yep. Uh, He talks a little bit about the difference between English and American tubbing and how the English boats use two tubs instead of one, and that's actually more convenient. But I think that the implied advantage of the American tub is just that you can fit more line in the boat with one big tub than two smaller tubs. Yeah, that seems plausible. Yep. He and doesn't actually give any particular reason why. I'm, this is one of those cases where uh, he's not trying to go to bat for specifically the practices of the Pequod. Yep, um, yep. He also makes this interesting uh, statement that uh, the bottom of the whale boat is like critical ice, which will bear up a considerable distributed weight, but not merit very much of a concentrated one, which is like... Uh, I don't like the idea of being able to punch a foot through uh, the bottom of a whale boat. That seems incredibly dangerous. And this came up before with um, uh, Ahab's leg. Yes. Where the, um, he needed to reinforce the bottom of his whale boat because his peg would, go, would actually have a chance of punching through the half-inch planks. Yes. If he hit it hard. Yeah. Huh. Um... But there's also a note that the lower end of the whale line is not actually affixed to anything. There's a loop in it, and it sticks out of the tub near the bottom out of a special hole uh, because, uh, basically, you don't want it attached to anything in case the whale goes down further than you have line for and just yanks your boat underwater. Yep. And uh, described as, uh, the doomed boat would infallibly be dragged down after him into the profundity of the sea, and in that case, no town crier would ever find her again. Yep. Yeah, I also like uh, the way that he describes uh, the whale running out the entire line in a single smoking minute. Yes, it's a very 
it gives you a sense of how like intense and sudden that would be and we'll see why we'll see some smoking in fact connected mm-hmm. to this very soon in like uh, the next chapter or so or the chapter after that but in the meantime um there's also the one of the reasons that the whale line is just sort of sticking out with a loop tied in the end like the when, when he says a loop tied in the end it's not just that you've got like a bowlin knot tied on the end there it's that the the rope has actually been spliced back into itself. I've seen this on some ropes, so that it forms a loop that then merges back with itself as a solid rope. Because then what you can do is the next whale boat that isn't yours, during that minute of the whale of the line running out, can try and like row over to you and hook their whale line into that loop so that and like tie it off so that they can then pass over the whale line to the next boat doubling the length of the effective line because eventually the injured whale will come back up for air no matter how deep it sounded and you'll be able to start drawing in the line again yeah um by the way i yeah i i I needed to mention this because i actually was like vaguely confused by this when i was reading the chapter The, the whale line is coiled on the boat it's not on the deck of the ship I, I, for some reason, when I was reading this, I kept picturing it as being on the deck of the ship. And like the Pequot. Yeah, yeah. But it's on, no, the, the whale lines are individual and in the little whaling boats. Yeah, I think. Each of which has their own. I think the reason I was confused is because he consistently refers throughout the chapter to the whale line, and so there's only one, but there's. Yes, there's one on each, yeah, you're right, there's one on each boat. Yeah. Um. Yeah, and so they can be linked together like that. Um, they're also quite, po- they're also going to be coiled on ship and then put in the tub on the boat, which is then dropped off the side of the ship in the lowering. Right. Well, lowered down. You don't just drop it. That would be terrible. Um, uh, there's also a note that, um, I think, what's the description of it? Yes, uh, when the um, when the whale line is handed over between boats, it's described as, the whale, of course, is shifted like a mug of ale, as it were, from the one boat to the other. Uh, though the first boat always hovers at hand to assist its consort. So once you've made the once you've made the harpooning and you hand it over, the uh, the now like lineless boat will just sort of be paddling along to try and offer whatever help and I guess possibly to pick people up if the other boat gets smashed. Presumably, uh, you know, could help with uh, the actual whale lancing too. Yes, that's also true. Um, and then uh, there's also, you mentioned that this was something that kind of confused you in the next bit. Yeah, okay, so, so, um, so, uh, when the boat is actually lowered, um, the whale line is not kept all coiled in the tub, it's, like, threaded throughout the entire whale boat, over and under everything. Yes. For some reason? Like, it's, um... It's carried forward the entire length of the boat. So part of this is that um, it has to go aft from the tub to the loggerhead. And the loggerhead is like a thick piece of wood that to get better leverage, you turn the whale line around a couple times so that the whale tub isn't just yanked over the boat. It's bas- it's like a pulley, basically. Yeah, but it's I... just a piece of wood, that, like a, a pole that serves as this... Um, as this uh, this pulley and to reduce the tension on the tub itself, um, and the uh, and while it's doing that, it cro- it goes between all the the rowers, and then it also sort of coils and turns around the boat before it gets to the uh, harpoon. And I think I know why that is. It's so that every person on the ship can grab the line and help pull it, because mm. when the whale is retreating across the surface. You want to hold. You want to be as pulled along behind it and get as close as possible. So you'll notice that um, 
uh, in the next chapter, uh, Stubb has to grab the line. Yes. So you don't just let it spool out. You then actually grab the line and hold it to hold the whale back and to use the harpoon. Otherwise, there'd be no point in, like, putting a rope on it besides to know which way it was going. Right, right. So I think that's why the whale line is uh, dancing all around people. But that also means when it runs out, all of that rope is suddenly moving really fast. Like, there's just a, an incredibly fast-moving rope moving in the lines that it's been set out in between, like, pulleys and hooks. Yeah, so so the um, this sort of... Uh... The, the fact that, as he puts it, all the oarsmen are involved in its perilous contortions um, means that, you know, once the harpoon is darted, uh, everyone has to be ready to, like, move around and avoid being, like, yanked by the whale line. Yep, yanked, um, slapped by it, cut by it. If there's a kink in it, it can grab you um, and hook you. Uh, the, um, the whole description is quite intense because, you know... Uh, We'll see this in the next chapter, but the line moves really fast when it goes out. And there's also a number of, like, specific ways the line is prepared, which is things like at the bows you have some, like, coils of it in a little special box so that as soon as you throw it, you don't have to pull the entire length of the line to throw. Because that is one thing that's going on when you throw it, is that you want enough of a coil right by your elbow or whatever so that you're not trying to pull around all that turning stuff to get let distance. It would just, it would pull, it, there'd be too much resistance. Yeah. So you start with a bundle near you and a bunch like that. That lands in the whale. And then when the whale, which has just been impaled, takes off, then all the rope starts shooting past everyone. Yeah. And, and uh, the specific way Ishmael kind of talks about this is how, like, as you, you know, sit down in a whale boat, encircled by the whale line for the first time, you have to be very conscious of the fact that, like, at any moment, this... This, this rope that is just sitting there stationary could suddenly jump into motion and, and put you in great danger. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, the first time, that's pretty terrifying. But uh, once you've been rowing a whaleboat habitually for a long time, uh, everybody's just uh, making jokes over this. Yep, yep. Gayer sallies, more merry mirth, better jokes, and brighter repartees you never heard over your mahogany than you will hear over the half-inch white cedar of the whaleboat, when thus hung in hangman's nooses. So, yeah, it's very explicit that he's comparing the line to a noose, and it's all, like, uh, dangled over you and around you. And uh, not only that, but you're on a moving boat, like a little boat. So every wave, every shift of the oars, and you are, like, you're not just paying attention to your own safety. You can't just sit there avoiding the rope. You have to be rowing as hard as possible. You have to be uh, in in this tangle of motion, which he describes as, uh, for when the line is darting out, to be seated then in the boat is like being seated in the midst of the manifold whizzings of a steam engine in full play, when every flying beam and shaft and wheel is grazing you. Yep. So yeah, you're, um, I mean, that doesn't sound fun to me. <laughs> yeah, um, but, uh, as Ishmael points out, um, like, yes, uh, perhaps when you're sitting in a whaleboat, the possibility of death is extremely close at hand and, like, kind of, uh, present in the, like, this idea of sudden motion possibility of death is present in the stationary whale line, but... Isn't that really how everybody lives their lives all the time? <laughs> yep, we, we could all die. World is a fuck. Uh, we could all die at any time is what Ishmael's saying. So actually, really, you shouldn't be 
any more afraid sitting in the middle of a whale line than you would just sitting by your fire because uh in either case death comes suddenly and horribly and aren't we all really just living draped in hangman's nooses yeah and i don't agree <laughs> like like there's a real difference between in theory something completely unexpected and unlikely could happen to kill me or if the thing we're trying to do happens then this thing is going to move like grease lightning around me and uh if i move wrong my arm might be pulled off you know yeah this this feels in some ways like directly contradictory to the thing ishmael was saying uh at the end of uh brit where he was like yeah um you know, stay within the, the safety of the human soul. Don't, like, venture out into the dangers of life. And now he's like, listen, the dangers of life are everywhere. Um, yeah, no, you're right. That's that's very contradictory, Ishmael. He's just saying whatever makes whalemen sound coolest at a given time. <laughs> yeah, I think that's kind of true. I mean, I also think that, you know, um, I think that this expresses a certain real conflict within Ishmael where, like, he decided to go whaling because he, he kind of... Had a crush on Queequeg? Well, no. He decided to go whaling because he, he had given up on his life on land. Yes. Yes. And, it was a self-destructive urge. Yes. And so, and yet, on the Pequod, he has, I think, become more powerfully conscious of just how dangerous this situation yeah, has gotten himself Yeah, there was into. the hyena where he decided, yep, I'm basically dead, so let's go for it. Exactly. And so, like, I think it's not, you know... A coincidence that he seems to be kind of seesawing between these different philosophical positions on the idea of just how omnipresent death is and just how different being on a whaleboat is versus being anywhere else. Mm. Yeah, yeah. I think that I think that Ishmael's relation to risk is a bit weird. Yeah. And it very much depends on how uh, self-destructive he's feeling at a given moment. Yes. Yes. Um, but uh, having navigated those philosophical positions uh we have chapter 61 stub kills a whale yeah uh and uh this starts with queequeg saying basically when you see squid you're gonna get whales yeah he has queequeg sees a totally different omen in the squid uh from the one that starbuck does like for queequeg it's basically a good thing um yep and uh he turns out to be completely correct in this uh because they do in fact Spot a whale pretty soon. Um, yep. Uh, Ishmael is actually up in the masthead along with other, uh, you know, mastheader uh, lookouts. And they're all sort of drowsy because it's a really nice, calm day. The wind is pleasant. The sun is pleasant. It's warm. And then they all sort of uh, see a whale at the same time, as well as everyone on the ship sees the whale at the same time. And I'll go, ah, whale! Yep. Uh, and, uh, uh, I... I I think uh, this is one of those bits, like, speaking of Ishmael's relationship to Rith, this is one of those times when he is, like, dissociating at the masthead, putting himself in, like, urgent danger of, like, falling off and dying because he's so relaxed. Yeah, thus ye young Platonists. Yeah. Um, anyway, uh, so he spots a whale, and it is it is a black sperm whale, so it is yes. not Moby Dick. Um, everyone is clear on that point. Yep, yep. Uh, it's also having an easy, equally, like, lazy day. Uh, it's described as lazily undulating in the trough of the sea, and ever and anon tranquilly spouting his vapory jet, the whale looked like a portly burger smoking his pipe of a warm afternoon. But that pipe, poor whale, was thy last. Yep. Hmm, I wonder what's gonna happen in the chapter Stub Kills a Whale. 
<laughs> yeah, uh, the 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 end of this has a little bit been given away. Um, so uh, they they lower, um, and uh, it seems like the whale is uh, alarmed by the sound of them, you know, shouting and lowering because yeah, well, it... first Ahab gave orders that not an oar should be used and no man must speak. But no, no, no. It's... Oh, that's... So the way that Ishmael presents it is. He says, the sudden exclamations of the crew must have alarmed the whale. Ah. The whale swims away. And then Ahab's like, oh, okay. N- no using the oars. Right, uh, sorry, Speak I skimmed whispers. over that. Yeah, it, basically, uh, it's it's like the whale swims away, which gives the impression that maybe it has noticed Something. Uh, noticed the boats. So they immediately go as, as silent as they can to avoid, you know, avoid alarming it any further. Um, or, yeah. you know, in the hopes that maybe it hasn't actually noticed them yet. Yeah, there's not enough um, wind to just fly sails, so they are forced to row. So the whale does, so it, uh, does think, at least dive. I think they have sep- I think they have paddles and oars, mm. and the paddles are quieter than the oars. That's entirely possible because a, a paddle would be quieter than an oar. Yeah. Um. So they they paddle after uh, the whale, um, and then it um. Then it uh, it dives. It just goes straight down yep, as it, whales it do. Flips up its flukes, um, and and uh, and then at that point uh, it's sort of a, a brief waiting period because you know they're just waiting for the whale to reappear. Uh, and Stubb takes that opportunity to light his pipe, as is his wont. Yep. Um, and then mm. uh, the whale rises again, and at this point, uh, no more attempts at silence because have, having. Uh, dove and come back up they assume that the whale is aware of them and also they're like right up on it at this point yeah the whale is also going quote head out uh which is to say that the whale is swimming quickly with the bulk of his head above what we say his because the book says his but the bulk of its head above the water there's a little footnote about um the way whale sperm whales swim where because so much of their head is filled with this light spermaceti which is a very light and buoyant substance the uh, whale's head is often lifted partially out of the water, and because it has such a narrow jaw, um, this creates a different profile for swimming, which Ishmael likens to, uh, he thereby may be said to transform himself from a bluff-bowed sluggish galliot into a sharp-pointed New York pilot boat. So, like, instead of the big wide uh, whale head pushing through the water, it's just the jaw and the whale head is raised up above it, which means he remains visible, but also goes faster yep uh and uh stub stub's boat being the closest to the whale uh he cheers his crew on in his sort of typical you know uh contradictory way easy do it don't hurry yourselves take plenty of time but starter starter like thunderclaps that's all yep you know it's that that same uh we can't tell if he's joking but we better try hard yep and uh all three harponeers uh start yelling um yep yep which uh by the way uh, the way it comes across in this section is is very you know it is in keeping with the way the harpeneers have been portrayed in the past as like essentially wild men yes uh but i think uh it it in the next chapter we'll hear a little bit more about uh why exactly they're doing this it's not just out of like pure sort of uh, natural passion for the hunt. Yeah, no, it's it's an expected custom for the harpooner to uh, row the hardest, shout the loudest, 
and fling the harpoon. Yep. And fling the first harpoon, and then the mate is supposed to come forward and take up the lances. Yep. So, uh, they, uh, Stubbs' boat gets close enough. Tashtigo is, uh, his, um, uh, is his, uh, harpooner, so Tashtigo takes the throw. Yep. Tashtigo darts his harpoon, and, and he hits, um, and, uh, the line runs out. Um, and the line runs out, you know, so at the same moment something went hot and hissing along every one of their wrists, because the way the boat is set up, uh, the rowers have a line running along basically one of their arms and, like, across one of their wrists as they row. So all of them immediately feel it, like, burn along the top of their wrist as the, um, as the line starts to move, because it's been landed in the, uh, whale. Yep. And, in fact, uh, around the loggerhead where stuff, Stub has, like, wrapped the line... Uh, it literally starts to smoke. Yes. Uh, a hempen blue smoke. So I assume that's like, if I knew what hemp burning was like, it would be blue. That I, I assume it's blue because of the tar. Oh, it could be blue because of the tar. You're right. Just, he makes it sound like it's the hemp that makes it blue. But um, uh, as a line passed round and round the loggerhead, so also, just before reaching that point, it blisteringly passed through and through both of Stubbs' hands. Because his... Um, the, uh, the hand cloths, which were, like, squares of heavy, thick cloth for grabbing the, uh, line with, he'd, like, dropped in the excitement. Yes. Uh, so Stubb orders the closest oarsman to wet the line, uh, which he does by scooping water up in his hat. Um, according to Ishmael, there, there are various, you know, tools that are used for wetting the line, because that's just something you have to do. It runs so fast that it burns, so you need to douse it with water. Yeah. Um, and so, you know... Uh, there are mops, or, like, a little, like, baler, but your hat, however, is the most convenient. <laughs> yep, yep. Uh, anyway, um... And the, um, more turns around the loggerhead are taken so that the, uh, there's more resistance and the boat starts to be pulled by the harpoon. Um, quote, the, boi- the boat now flew through the boiling water like a shark all fins. Yep. And, uh, Stubb and Tashtigo change places, um... As mentioned, there's this thing where the harpooner darts the harpoon, and then for the lance, the mate takes the front. Yep. Uh, more about that next chapter. But yep, yep. Uh, anyway, uh, so they do that. Um, and they're uh, just, like, racing along the water, the line taut and, like, you know, quivering. Um, also, Ishmael has this description. I have to say, this sounds like my absolute least favorite part of, of whaling so far is uh, gra- the idea of grabbing that line. It was like holding an enemy's sharp two-edged sword by the blade, and that enemy all the time striving to wrest it out of your clutch. Yeah. Like, I just don't like the idea of grabbing something sharp. It always It's an upsetting image to me, and the idea of grabbing the like blistering, buzzing line is just horrible. Ugh. Yeah. No, right all the way down. It's pretty scary. Yeah. Also, Ishmael does take ter- t- uh, take pains to note that Stubb is still smoking, and his pipe smoke is mingling with the smoke from the hemp. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, um, they, uh, they, they zoom along towards the whale, um, and then finally the whale slows down a little bit, uh, so they're able to haul in on the line and clo- close in, um... And, uh... Stubb just starts, uh, hurling, uh, darts and lances at the whale. Yeah, and, and by the way, I, it seems as though what he's doing is 
hurling a single lance and then pulling it back with a line that it's attached to. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it... Entirely possible. I'm. It's not entirely clear to me. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, he is now, he is attacking the whale. And it yeah, is... no, he does say, as at every dart, hauling in upon his crooked lance by the line attached to it, stubbed straight in it again and again by a few rapid blows against the gunwale. So he's hurling his lance in, and then as it, like, gets pulled out of the whale, or the whale, like, contorts against it, the lance gets, like, bent. The metal lance. And so he pull or it, like, bounces off the whale and, like, scratches it, but bends. And then when he gets it back, he hammers it out on the boat's side and hurls it again. Yep. Uh, and the whale is, uh, uh, spilling blood out into the water, um, and the, it is, uh, it is spouting puff after, well, jet after jet of white smoke was agonizingly shot from the spiracle of the whale, and vehement puff after puff from the mouth of the excited headsman. Uh, so both, both Stubb and the whale are smoking. Yep, yep. And, uh, there's also this moment where, like, as the whale is, um basically being exhausted by blood loss stub like comes up besides it with the long lance and still holding it in his hands basically just starts spearing the whale to try and get at its vitals yeah it's grim it's it's gory yeah yeah i i guess presumably at this moment he's seeking a life spot right yes uh he says uh it's compared to someone like with a hook tr- or someone trying to feel after a gold watch at a fish or something that's like fallen someplace that, that's yeah yeah it's fragile and you want to acquire it but that gold watch he sought was the innermost life of the fish and he finds it yep he uh he he stabs whatever the vital point is and the the whale enters its death throes or the unspeakable thing called his flurry yep wallowing in his blood because his blood is like spreading across the sea so it's described as like there's a red pond in the ocean yep um and uh and uh, the, the, the boat actually has to, like, move away from the whale at this point uh, to avoid, mm-hmm. I guess, being swamped by the yeah, bloody by its thrashing. Spray. Well, by its thrashing as well. Mm, um, like, right. the, the boat could just get capsized by the whale striking it. Uh, but then finally, uh, the thing that the, um, the Ishmael has told us is the sign of a whale's death, spouting red as its internal bleeding, as its heart gives out, as its, um, as its lungs presumably fill with blood, and the spout is red. Yep. Uh, Dagoo calls it, says, He's dead, Mr. Stubb. Uh, and Stubb's response is, Yes, both pipes smoked out. And withdrawing his own from his mouth, Stubb scattered the dead ashes over the water, and for a moment stood thoughtfully eyeing the vast corpse he had made. So, yeah. The whale has been slain by Stubb. This uh, immense uh, chase and the... Frankly, one of the things that really stands out is how incredibly smoothly this went for the whaling crew. Yeah, no, this is pretty much a model whale hunt. Yeah. Everything goes right for them. They, uh, it's, you know, their weapons are clearly more than a match for the whale. Yeah. (sighs) Oh. And then having had that intense moment of adventure and wailing and gore, uh, we're just going to explain some uh, devices. We're going to yeah. explain some devices. Yeah, Ishmael needs to tell us in detail how darting the harpoon works. Yes. Um, and complain about how, some of how it's done. And I love how he, the way he thinks about this, it's like, all right, before my scene of actual whaling and like successful whale killing, I need to tell you all about the whale line. And after it, I need to tell you about harpooning. It's like... Do you need us to understand the mechanics of this before we see it or not? 
yeah, yeah, no, he's just, he just has no, like I've said before, Ishmael doesn't have a good sense of what order to tell a story, and he gets distracted, he goes in on these other things. Yep. And they, they serve thematic points in the narrative, uh, you know, on the, on the Melville side of things, but starting at 62, the dart after, uh, the vast corpse he had made with, a word concerning an incident in the last chapter. Just like, yeah. hey, excuse me, I, like, I'm just imagining, like, a slow fade to black or fade to red as mm-hmm. Stubb is, like, tapping out his pipe, the little man looking at this immense whale dying in the water. And then Ishmael, like, pokes his head in from off screen, just like, hey, excuse me, before we move on to the next scene, I, I just have a few a, a note cards here. I'm, I'm a, please excuse me. Uh, do you have a minute to talk about Harpenier's rights? Oh, God, yeah. Uh, so... Ishmael from the, um, I'm from the Foundation for the, uh, Protection of Harpooners because they're cool. Yes. Uh, so, to get to why he's making that argument, we're gonna actually have to explain how harpooning works. Yes. Um, so, as, as we saw in the previous chapter, um, the normal way that, uh, whale fishing works is that the, um, the whale boat sets out with the... The headsman, so in this case, Stubb, the mate, uh, at, in the in the stern. So that he can steer the boat with a steering oar. Exactly. Um, and then the harpooner uh, in in the bow, uh, rowing. Because um, there's a number of men rowing across uh, in the boat to give it, you know, speed. Yes. Um, and uh, the harpooner is going to need to toss a harpoon maybe 20 or 30 feet um but and sink it into the whale yes uh but before he does that uh he also is expected to basically as we said in the previous chapter um row the hardest and yell the loudest uh yeah so he's just putting his entire body to work because of this convention so that when he arrives he's already like deeply out of breath yeah and like it it it's worth going to detail, as Ishmael does, about specifically what what the harpooner has to do when they get up to the whale and it's time to harpoon. Uh, he now has to drop and secure his oar, turn round on his center halfway, seize his harpoon from the crotch, and with what little strength may remain, he essays to pitch it somehow into the whale. Yeah, so Ishmael blames this organization of things on the fact that... Uh, um, even if you look, if you look at whalemen in general, out of 50 fair chances for a dart, not five are successful. No wonder that so many hapless harpooners are madly cursed and disrated. No wonder that some of them actually burst their blood vessels in the boat. No wonder that some sperm whalemen are absent four years with four barrels. Yeah, so basically, Ishmael's point here, and he'll, he'll make it in, in, uh, slightly more detail in, in, in the next paragraph, basically, but, uh, is that if... Harpooners were not expected to exhaust themselves rowing before they actually throw the harpoon. Uh, whaling would be a much more successful enterprise. Yes, because the the initial harpoon needs to go in. Because if it bounces off the whale and just injures them, the whale will just dive and swim, and you'll have to catch it when it comes up and pursue it again. Or maybe you won't even be able to, because the whale will flee more effectively. Whereas if you harpoon it, uh, the whale fleeing can you know you can be dragged after, and it will also be slowed down by the big metal spike in it. Yeah. Um, And, as we, again, saw in the last chapter, uh, not only uh, does the harpooner have to to throw the harpoon at this critical moment, when already exhausted, and with this, like, awkward rearranging as he puts down the oar, 
he then has to switch places with the headsman. Yeah, and um, as we already discussed, the entire, if he successfully landed the harpoon, now the line is running out. So all these coils of line have become dangerous, and now the mate has to run up to the front of the boat, and the harpooner has to run back to the back so that he can take up the steering oar, and now the mate can handle the lance. Yeah, and, uh, you know, at this point, it should be obvious... Ishmael's basically saying, none of this makes any goddamn sense. Yep. Now, uh, I care not who maintains the contrary, but all this is both foolish and unnecessary. Uh, and it, it is his opinion that the um, the person who throws the harpoon and the lance should be the same person, and that person should be the harpooner, and his name should be Queequeg, and everyone <laughs> should respect him. And he shouldn't have to row is the important part. Yes. Uh, he, there should just be one guy sitting at the front of the boat, exempt from rowing, Saving all his strength for harpooning and lancing. Yes. Uh, and he says, Long experience in various whalemen of more than one nation has convinced me that in the vast majority of failures in this fishery, it has not by any means been so much the speed of the whale as the poor described exhaustion of the harpooner that has caused them. So that's his argument that instead of focusing on following the whale as quickly as possible, which is to say using all available rowing speed, uh, you instead accept that you're going to be a little slower, but have a more effective harpooner. Yeah. Uh, and this feels very much in keeping with an argument Ishmael made, or not an argument, but like something he brought up uh, in a chapter quite a while back. I don't remember which chapter it was, but he talked about how in like, I want to say like Dutch whaling of like a previous century, harpooners were considered officers mm-hmm. um, and, and like had had like sort of more of a respected role. And officers' privileges. Exactly. Uh, and, and he very clearly like lamented the... the yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, like, in fact, what Ishmael is proposing here is even more extreme than that, because he doesn't just want, uh, you know, um, like, he's not quite going so far as to explicitly state this, but he basically wants every, uh, sort of privilege, every point of pride that the mate gets in the whaleboat to be replaced with the harpooner. Yeah, he more or less argues, when he says the headsman should stay in the bows from first to last, he should dart the harpoon and the lance, and... It's basically saying that the harpooner should, I think it's implied the harpooner should basically be in charge of the enterprise. Yeah, like, uh, you know, on some level, whoever is actually steering the boat presumably is also... Going to be in charge of the actual, like, sailing of the boat. So that's still going to be the mate, but he just thinks the harpooner should get to do all of the stabbing. Yes. Um. Yeah. And to ensure the greatest efficiency in the dart, the harpooners of this world must start to their feet from out of idleness and not from out of toil. It's just like... I just think harpooners shouldn't have to do anything except the coolest and most glamorous part of their jobs. (laughs) Yeah. I think they should get to kill the whale, which is very clearly a big deal and, like, a major, um, possibly you actually get more oil. I can't remember if you get, like, a commission for being the one to kill the whale the same way you might get a commission for being the one to spot it. But I do know that there's, like, a lot of pride in it. Yeah. Like, Stubb is feted for, um... For killing this whale. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it doesn't really seem, you know, the chapter's called Stubb Kills a Whale, not Tashtigo Kills a Whale. Even though, yeah. obviously, without Tashtigo, none of this would have happened. Yeah, yeah, Tashtigo harpooned the whale, and also was the one who, I think, saw the whale. Yep. And Jen- uh, uh, no, I think Dagu was the one who spotted it from the... Oh, no, 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 it was... Sorry, when you say... Sp- they all saw it, after, I mean, like, after the whale came back up. Oh, yeah, I think that was Tashtigo. Anyway. Maybe, anyways, it's, uh... I think it's, no, I think it's more general. I think everyone sees it. So, Tashtigo spotted the um, previous whale they didn't get. Yes, that's yeah. right. 
Uh, but in any case... Oh, and Deku is part of the squid. That's what yes, I was thinking about. Yeah, yeah, But anyways, the, um... Ishmael having made his, uh, Harpooner's Rights statement. Yep. Uh, time for the last chapter of this episode. Chapter 63, The Crotch. Yeah. And also, he explicitly says <laughs> that he just sort of diverged into this topic by accident. Yes. And but... it's not, in fact, uh at all related to the main topic of the story right now. Out of the trunk, the branches grow. Out of them, the twigs. So in productive subjects grow the chapters. The so, crotch alluded to on a previous page. So yeah, he is pretty much literally admitting, like, I just put in uh, chapters in this book as they naturally sprout out of my mind. Yeah, yeah, or like, oh, I mentioned that they grabbed the harpoon from the crotch. Now, we don't want anyone to assume that that's like, it's stored between their legs. That would be impractical no no no. the crotch is a specific part of a whale boat <laughs> yes um so it is a two foot long notched stick uh inserted sideways into the gunnel at the bow uh, on the starboard bow yes on the starboard bow uh as a place to rest the butt end of the harpoon and then the um uh, the barbed end like just points forward out of the boat mm-hmm. um and uh Normally, there are actually two harpoons in there, the first and second irons. Mm -hmm. um, and they're both connected to the whale line with, like, two separate yes. cords. And um, the same whale line. The idea being to uh, dart the first and then uh, quickly pick up the second and dart it as well so that the line will be attached uh, by either one if the first one doesn't land. However, there's a bit of a problem with this, uh, what Ishmael calls a doubling of the chances. Yeah, because, so... If you if the harpooner doesn't manage to dart both irons as quickly as he needs to, which you know is a very possible, in fact, it states it becomes impossible for the harpooner, however lightning-like in his movements, to pitch the second iron if the first lands. Right, and so this means that you've now got a whole harpoon attached to the whale line, just kicking about in the sh in the boat. Well, not in the boat, in like the water between the boat and the whale. Well. No, no, no. That's where you need to put it. Oh, like, right. It's in right, the crotch, right. right? It's in the boat, and it's going to be tugged by the whale yes, line. Yes, yes, right, right. Must be anticipate. I was thinking that it would be like yanked out of the boat with the whale line, and that's also a problem. But they also desperately want it to just, just you know, as a safety precaution, just toss the harpoon into the water. Yes. Which is a very funny image to me. And then, even then, it's still pretty dangerous. Uh, uh, because it thenceforth becomes a dangling, sharp-edged terror, skittishly curvetting about both boat and whale, entangling the lines or cutting them, and making a prodigious sensation in all directions. So, yeah, you've just got an extra harpoon just flying around next Doing to Doing its own thing. Yeah, and uh, not only this, but, uh, you know, when you've got four boats all chasing... One unusually strong, active, and knowing whale. Who knows Who knows when that might happen? Uh, which four boats might... Uh... Anyway, uh, so <laughs> you've actually got, in that situation, eight or ten loose second irons. Because, uh, you know, each boat has its second iron, and it actually maybe has like a third or a fourth iron, too. Uh, so yeah, just so many harpoons. And, dangling around yeah and any that you don't land because remember it was something like uh five and fifty lowering so it's like one in ten harpoons i mean i guess if you have a good harpoonier more than that but especially for the second shot which is unlikely to land so you're just there's a decent chance that you've just got most of your harpoons are uh not doing that or like you know every second harpoon that's 
as you get every line you can, or just toss harpoons out on the line and they fail to land. It sounds like a mess. Yeah, yeah. With every detail that Ishmael elucidates to us about, like, exactly how whale boats and, and whale hunting works, it just gets more amazing that this ever works. Yeah, no, I I agree. It gets less and less, it's more and more just like, how... How are you alive? How are any of you alive? <laughs> Which I You're mean, fighting a whale with a little metal spike, and the metal spike itself is trying to kill you. And like, you know, that is the point that Ishmael has been trying to make this entire time. How are any of them alive? <laughs> and meanwhile, Ahab's like, I'm only 75% alive and I don't like it. <laughs> I feel like it might also be argued that Ahab is like more alive than a normal person, that he's like... 125% alive. Uh, I, hmm. He's got more... He walks on both life and death, Mark. Yeah, what I'm saying is he's got less body, but more soul. Mm, well, not more soul, more mind, mm, which has yeah. become its own burning engine, successfully <laughs> I, successfully independent of a soul. God. Ahab, a metaphysical curiosity. Just imagine Ishmael, like, following Ahab around, being like, fascinating. What a are metaphysical. You? curiosity and ahab just looking at him and possibly kicking him with the pit the peg and ishmael's like that's fine sir i don't mind (laughs) (sighs) so yeah that's um that's just a bunch of wailing stuff yeah yeah just a a nice um assortment of uh events and and details concerning details actually wailing yeah we've got brit we got squid we got the crotch we got the dart uh, and we got, uh, the line, and then also Stubb kills a whale. Yeah, it's, it, it was, like, five chapters that were mostly informational, and then one just, like, burning action. <laughs> yes, I, I really actually enjoy how it's, you know, this is, this is Ishmael being bad at organizing things, but it makes the book a lot of fun to read, that there's, uh, you know, oh, this is interesting squid. Oh, this is interesting Brit. Not in that order. And then, um, you know, here's what you need to know about the whale line, because it came up earlier. Oh, and, and then at some point, Stubb killed a whale. The time works like this, right? <laughs> and then, oh, right, you need to understand the dart and the crotch before we get to, you know, the next chapter, which is about Stubb eating part of the whale. Yeah. 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 I feel like this maybe in some ways reflects you know, what the actual experience of being on the Pequot is, where, like, uh, at unpredictable intervals, all of a sudden, Mm. everything bursts into action. But in between that, you may as well just be, like, sitting around, thinking about all the trivia you know about the stuff you're passing. And also doing things like coiling whale line and sharpening harpoons. Yes. I will say, there's a a phrase I saw at one point that was, like, describing uh, military uh, life as pure long stretches of intense boredom separated by periods of sudden and horrifying violence. Yeah, that's that's not a terrible description of this as well. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Uh, but yeah, no, they um they got a whale. I think that's our first whale. We can we can increment the whale counter. <laughs> yeah, it's not the first whale to appear in the book, but it is the first actual whale death. Yes. It's the first whale we've seen uh killed by whalers. So this first successful lowering. Yeah. <sighs> cool shit. Yeah, yeah. And now you might think Ishmael, being a educated fellow and not much given to violence, has lowered himself by this lowering. But oh my god! You know what? I won't... you're as bad as he is. <laughs> Look, I. You 
know where I'm getting it. <laughs> you know what's inspiring me. So yes, I am aspiring to be as terrible as Ishmael is about puns. <sighs> I guess I have to respect it in some upsetting way. <laughs> I mean, much like their ability to kill whales, right? Yeah, fair enough. Fair enough. Because it is, it is upsetting. It's a remarkably gory process. Yeah, yeah. And soon we're going to hear about the uh, the processing of the whale, which is going to be another long stretch of technically narrative chapters, since it's describing steps that are happening, but very much sort of schematic. You know, here's how the sausage gets made. Only it's not sausage; it's a small pile of whale steaks and a bunch of barrels of oil. Yeah, yeah. I am looking forward to that because uh, you know I've I've enjoyed the like all the details about. Oh, line yeah, no, and it's... harpoons and, and the sort of uh, mechanical functions of that. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, well, the... I this is what I signed up for with this book on some level. This is what Ishmael signed up for, too. And now he's going, and now he's like, wait, is this all normal? Is this what we do here? <laughs> Hang, surrounded by nooses, uh, you know, pitching ourselves into the jaws of leviathans. Okay, cool, cool, great. I'm chill with this. This is fine. <laughs> I'm laughing, actually. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but, yeah, um, I will say... The butchery sections of this book get pretty intense in terms of just describing every step in the process of carving up and, like, dismembering a whale. It's it's pretty impressive, and it's also quite gory. Yeah, well, we'll get to those when we get to them. Yep, yep. Um, but, yeah. I think in the meantime, we have, we have covered what we set out to cover today. Yeah, I, I guess so. Um, yeah, I don't really have anything to add, so... Uh, what tune is it we sing for, men? A dead whale or a stove boat?